Well, I know what you're thinking. Hmm, James has got a new shirt. <laughs> I'm still trying to work out whether they look like a giant Jersey caramel. But anyway, we're talking about generosity today. The other day, my wife and I with some uh, dear friends went for dinner and parked the car and about to pay for a parking ticket. And then someone said, whoa, stop. Turned around and there was a lady who had her parking ticket and said, here, have this. Now, you know how expensive Sydney parking is. You have to get half a mortgage. I was, was, we were really excited to have this. Yeah, thank you. And then something awkward happened. She then said, do you have cash? I'm like, sorry? Do you have, do you have cash? Like $20, $30? What? Oh. And I, okay. And then we sort of started looking. We don't have cash. And so this awkward moment where we had the ticket and to give it back to you? or the, It was very confusing. I realised two things at that moment. Firstly, I got a good sermon illustration. Secondly, com- generosity, it's confusing, right? We're all confused, giving, receiving money. And so what we're going to do this morning is hopefully, from Deuteronomy, bring a bit of clarity on three things. Firstly, we're going to look at prosperity and see the surprising reason why you're so rich. Secondly, we're going to look at generosity and I want to show you some things, so these commands from Deuteronomy, some things that I never knew about giving. And then thirdly, I want to finish by talking about your hands. All good? Let's jump in. Hypothetical. If you today, this morning, were given $100 million, what would you do with it? I presume, you know, you'd go on a nice holiday. Uh, it's probably enough money to buy a small unit in Sydney. Uh, you'd probably give some to charity. That's what you have to say. Uh, whatever, we sort of say these things and these hypothetical things. Whatever you would say, one thing's guaranteed. Your life would be different from here on. God's people, the Israelites, had been enslaved for many years. They had no rights, no privileges, no wages, nothing. And they had been wandering the desert for 40 years, and they were on the cusp of entering a land of absolute abundance, absolute prosperity, and guaranteed their life was about to be different. It's described. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, page 1570, Church Bibles. Have a look at verse, what is it, 7. It says this, The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, honey, a land with bread will not be scarce, and you will lack nothing. Now, to be honest, that sounds like an ad for the Hunter Valley, doesn't it? The, the, the summary of this land is a land flowing with milk and honey, abundance, prosperity, wealth. Now, why did they get this? Have they earned it? Is it a reward? No, no, no. It's a gift that God wants his people to enjoy good things. Now, I guarantee you there was probably some Israelites who were thinking when they entered, oh, I don't know if we can enjoy this. Oh, it's going to be here forever. And this sort of cloud of guilt that consumes anything. This wealth, this prosperity, it's bad. Friends, it's not bad because God has given it. 
Wealth and prosperity is not a bad thing. It is a blessing from God. Don't turn it into something that it's not. But there are two dangers when it comes to wealth and prosperity, which are highlighted in chapter 8. The first is forgetfulness. Have a look, verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful, though, that you do not forget the Lord your God. See, when you're full, you forget. God's people have just come out of a season of emptiness, right? Where in the desert, where all they had was an abundance of sand, right? And every morning they would wake up thinking, will God provide? And there's some bread, some quail, some drink. Each day, will God provide? And they knew the reliance they had on him. But now they're entering into a season of abundance, and it's so easy to just go into neutral and glide. The story of a lady called Elaine, who decided she wanted to bless her adult children by inviting them over for a meal, yum cha meal. And for a couple of days in the lead up, she worked hard in that kitchen. She made everything perfect delicious, but the best ingredients. And then her children came over and they dined in this beautiful yum cha lunch. And then at the end of that meal, their kids were full and one by one wandered to the lounge to sleep. Not one of those kids said thank you to their mum. Now that's tragic, isn't it? You know what's even more tragic? Now that is happening, that story is happening every day across this land. Not so much to mums, but to God. But God has blessed us with absolute wealth, absolute abundance. And yet the average Aussie does not thank the giver of the gifts. Yes, we're thankful, but we do not thank the one who gave it to us all. Our problem in this land is not our wealth but it's our thanklessness. I saw this bumper sticker on a car the other, a number of years ago, which I think captured so much. It's time to say thank you, Australia. That is our problem, not what we've been given, but our thanklessness. And so that's why can I suggest, friends, the rhythm in your day, the habit of saying grace before a meal, to stop and say, thank you, God, and not presuming is such a healthy, God-honoring habit that you may have put off to the side. But don't just limit it to that. When you see Hamilton, when you have a good brunch, a beautiful sunset, go for a walk, these are moments to do what most Aussies aren't doing, but to say thank you to the giver of those gifts, to the Lord God. But here's the thing, when, when you don't thank God, who do you thank? Yourself. And so this is the other danger with wealth, pride. Verse 17 says this, You may say to yourself, you know what? My power and the strength of my hands have produced the wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for he, he gives you the ability to produce the wealth. Now look, here's, I'm going to say something that's controversial. The wealth that you have, the money in your bank account, the things that you own, has very little to do with you. I know you've worked hard. 
I know you've got a great budget. I know you're good with property, good with finances, right? I know you've studied hard, but the reality, despite your hard work ethic, despite your talents, if you were born in a developing world, you would be poor. You might be a little bit less poor than those around you, but you would be poor. So much of the wealth that you have is because God has placed you in a particular time and opportunity with family, with inheritance, with bonus, with health, with drive, and that is why you have the wealth that you do. That is humbling. And all the more reason to say thank you to God. The Israelites were about to experience unmerited, abundant blessing. God had been generous to them. The question is, will they be generous to God? Now, how are they to do that? This is the second thing. What does generosity look like? And we come to the commands. I want to highlight two commands that were read out to us. The first is tithing, Deuteronomy 14. Verse 22 says this. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields produced at each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and the first one of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. What this command is saying for God's people is saying they were to take 10% of their income. Now, they're an agricultural uh, in that sort of business, so they'll take 10% of their grain, their wine, their cattle, uh, their olive oil, and to take it to a place, and the place they'll find out later was going to be Jerusalem with a temple, and they were to offer that tithe to God, a public acknowledgement of God's generosity, that God had given them the soil in which to grow the food. He'd given them the sun, the showers. He'd given them the health, the, the energy to work. Without God, they would have nothing. And the same is for you and I. Now, some of this time was to go to the Levites. They were the temple workers who didn't have, uh, they were doing the sacrifices. They didn't have the time to work the field, so some of it went to them. And you'll notice every three years, there's the store some of the food to go to the foreigners, to the fatherless, to the widows, those in need. But you know what was surprising me about this? Verse 26 really shocked me. It says this. You and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. What they're saying is that they were to take the tithe and they were to eat it in the company of each other and the company of God. Now, I don't know about you because I always think that the tithe is more like a tax. You kind of just do it. You have to do it. Tick, book, done. But here God is wanting his people to come and take the tithe and enjoy it in his presence. You know the feeling that you get when someone opens a present, they put a lot of effort into giving them, and the smile it brings, or, or a meal that you cooked, and they're so thankful for that. That is the heart that God has towards you. He loves to see you enjoy the generous gifts that he's given. Now, we don't often think in this category particularly when it comes to, say, giving a church. But God, when he gives, he wants us to enjoy, to praise God for the blessing that we've received. Now, we can feel a sense of guilt because, you know, there's our rewards in heaven, so I don't want to think about it too much, so I kind of just boop, boop, dump, done, direct debit, you know, so do it quickly. 
You know, I don't want it to, you know, my reward in heaven to go. But here what it's saying is when you, when you give money to church, there's a sense of joy and blessing. You, in giving to church, enabled this sermon to happen. I don't know if it's a blessing to you or not. But enjoy. The Yap family here, the resources, the people that are in giving to church, you were part of their story and the other people's stories who have been baptised throughout this day. When you give, you, you, know, you enable those who aren't able to be in this building, who are watching now online, to do that very thing. Now you think, well, this is being a bit about pride. No, no, look, it's God's money giving it back to him. But enjoy the blessing of giving in God's presence because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, here's a question. Should a Christian, 20, 21, tithe? This, this commandment here, do we need to obey it? In this booklet, which you may or may not have, uh, page 12, we've put five steps for reading the law. How to understand it as a Christian. Do we obey it? Do we not? And what I want to do is to help you just quickly model those five steps in trying to work out, does a Christian have to obey these Old Testament laws? And there's five steps. There they are. Remember, question, ask, reflect, and pray. There's more detail in that booklet, but that's to help you to work out how do I read each command for myself to empower you to do that, right? So I'm going to model it a little bit to work out should we as Christians obey the tithe. The first thing is to remember. Remember what? These laws were written for a different time and cultural setting for God to his people. You know how we know that? Because the first verse of chapter 12, which begins all these commands, says this. These decrees and laws you're to follow as long as you live in the land. So, simply put, do we obey these commands in the Old Testament? Well, here's the question. Do you live in the promised land? I presume not. Australia's pretty good, but it's not the promised land. So the answer is no, right? These were for God and his people living in the promised land. But here's a question. Well, then why are we reading this? What's the point? Well, this is point two and point three. We question, we ask. What does this law seek to show us about God or how to love his neighbour? What good is this law trying to protect or promote or symbolise? We're trying to understand more about God and more about his ways. You know, at the end of the day, friends, even if we moved back to the promised land, we still will not obey these commands. You know why? Because ultimately these commands were pointing to a big need and a big redeemer, Jesus Christ. Because God's people didn't follow these laws, God himself came in Jesus Christ and followed every single one of them. They all point to Jesus who obeyed the law and fulfilled it. So the reason why you and I do not bring a lamb to sacrifice every time we've sinned to the temple is why? Because Jesus was the lamb who sacrificed for the sins of the whole world. The reason why you and I don't obey the commands and come to a temple to worship God is because when Jesus rose, his spirit dwelt in us 
And we are the temple. And every moment is a moment to worship God. The reason why you can eat prawns and lobster and wear polyester and cotton is because God's people and the Israelites, they, they were things to remind them to be different, what was clean and unclean. But because of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed inside out, holy, distinct, washed anew. But you know what? As New Testament people living this side of Jesus, God still has commands for his people to obey. And so don't be surprised when you see commands that are very similar in New Testament to that of the Old. This is the fourth point, reflect. Because when it comes to the New Testament, it does reiterate a whole bunch of things that the Old Testament did. So let's say the tithe. God's people were to give to the Levites. New Testament people, 1 Timothy 5, it says, ministers are entitled to receive support. In the Old Testament, it said, give to the fatherless, to the widow. In the New Testament, it says, remember the poor and those in need. The Old Testament, they're supposed to give 10%. In the New Testament, there's no number given. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 says this, Each of you should give whatever you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a what? A cheerful giver. There's a freedom of what percentage? 5, 10, 20%, whatever it is. There's a freedom to give and to be generous. Now, I want to say there's wisdom in a percentage, right? Because as your pay goes up and down, it's adjusting on what you've had. You're stewarding what God has given you. But at the end of the day, God is the same, old and new. He cheerfully loves to give to his people, and he wants his people to be cheerful givers. Let's quickly look at the second command, debts. Chapter 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Now, pause. Why seven? Six days God worked, and the seventh he rested. It's entering God's, God's people entering God's rest. Let's keep on going. Verse 2. This is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their people because the Lord's time of cancelling debt has been proclaimed. See, if another one of God's people is in debt, it might have been a bad harvest. It might have been a hardworking husband dropped dead, who was the financial means by which the, the wife and the children could survive. Now, in this day, there are no institutions. There are no banks. There are no safety nets. There is nothing. It was so easy to fall into debt. And God is saying, when that happens, be generous. Loan the money. But when it comes to the seventh year, cancel that debt. You do not owe any more. And what is amazing is verse 4. It says, there need be no poor among you. That if all God's people were lending and borrowing and cancelling debts, then there'll be no poor. There's more than enough to go around. I was reading an article about a couple of weeks ago by former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd talking about theology. And he said this, My simple garden variety theology is the God of the New Testament 
gives preference to the poor, the outcast, and the oppressed. And I read that as it implies that the gold in the Old Testament doesn't. But I don't know whether he's read these chapters. Because here he's saying when generosity is the driving force, poverty can be eliminated. But the Bible's also not naive to our hearts. I mean, look, imagine you're in this time, and it's the sixth year, and it's December. And you see that neighbour walking towards you who you know has done it tough. What do you think? I presume you think verse 9. The seventh year, the year of cancelling debts is near. You know what? I just might go for a long walk or a holiday for the next month. Right? I won't ask for a show of hands who thought that because we'll all put our hands up, right? These thoughts pop into our head, Right? We don't change all that much. We look for excuses of how we can get out of being a generous people. Now, we're not supposed to obey this commandment, but we are, as 1 John 3, verse 17 says, if anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in them? Dear children, let us love one another with words or... Let us not love one another with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. Look, as I look around, some of us are what I call mini debt collectors. You have a list in your mind of you know who owes you money. You look around and say, that, they, they owe me a coffee. I know that person, they still owe me $23. That person over there, I remember we went on holidays in 1987, and I think they still owe me some money. But you are that kind of person, a little debt collector. Can I encourage you, let people enter God's rest by saying, you know what, you don't owe me anymore. Some of us have very tight conditions for the ways in which we can be generous. Or we kind of give ourselves these justifiable reasons. Oh, I don't know about you, here's an honesty moment, but when it comes to see someone homeless on the street, you know where my mind goes to? You know, if I was to give them money, they're probably going to spend it drugs and alcohol. So it's better if I don't do it. I'm probably loving them by not doing it. I don't know if you think similar. I had this moment that dawned on me this week saying, I'm so glad God is not like me. That God only gives me the things I need for the times that I'm going to use it well. Because look at the amount of times that I've impulse bought, overbought, or spent it on a coffee that I don't really need. So glad God is not like me. Now, friends, I'm not saying don't be wise. We need to be wise, right? But if you find yourself saying no more than saying yes, if your conditions are very specific of the ways in which you can give and you find yourself not really giving, it's more a reflection of you and your own heart. When it comes to those in need, our temptation is just to walk on the other side. Don't wait for opportunities. Don't reclude in, but go out and give when it comes to those in need. Your brother and sister in Christ, in connect group, in church, who might be sitting next to you, who shares the ways in which they're in need. To go and to let people enter God's rest by your generosity. Let me... Close, and when I say close, I don't mean a minute, I mean five or six, by talking about your hands. 
This is the third point. At the end of Deuteronomy, it has this beautiful image of 15 of our section today. Verse 7, it says, Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards those in need. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend whatever they need. Are you a tight-fisted kind of person? Or are you open-handed? Many years ago, I went to the shops and I bought this. It's a pencil holder. I brought it home. Charlotte didn't like it. She said, that's not saying in this house. And so I went, where to go? To the office. I share an office with Ed. He doesn't like it either. <laughs> Ironically, it fell and broke this morning. And uh, so it's got a hole in it. So I don't think it's got much life left in it. But anyway, I like it. And as I was preparing this sermon, I saw this fist. Is this you when it comes to the money that you have? You cling on to the wealth. You cling on hard. You let a little bit slip, but so afraid it might affect security, a way of life that we cling on hard. How do you move from being a person who is tight-fisted to open-handed? Because I can say all I want. Be generous, be generous, be generous, but that is going to have as much impact as me trying to open this. It takes the work of God. And you know what God does when it comes to calling us to be open-handed? He says, take our focus off our money and look up. Look back. You know how many times God says to his people, remember when you were slaves in Egypt, when you had nothing. And brothers and sisters, remember when we were dead in our sin, we were poor before God but he's redeemed us and blessed us. Look around at everything you have, and it is not yours by right, but it is a gift. Every good thing you have is a gift given to you. And look forward, because you know how much you're going to take into the new life? Nothing. Naked you came, naked you leave, but heaven is coming. And look to Jesus Christ. That God not only gave you everything, but he gave you himself in Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he became poor, so you can become rich. And when you meet Jesus, like Zacchaeus, when he encountered Jesus, you could tell it transformed him by his wallet. Because he gave back four times more than he was supposed to give. Stingy and Christian are two words that don't go together. Because we do not follow a stingy Christ. And the only way you would loosen your hands if you look off your money and look to Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in abundance. Last summer I read Ellen DeGeneres' biography. And there was a line which struck me. Where it said, she said, Whoever said the line, it's better to give than receive, is a liar. And I read that and I was quite struck by it. But I appreciated honesty. Because, I don't know if she knew this or not, but Jesus said those words. It is more blessed to give than receive. And I tell you, it has taken me years, and it probably has taken you years, to realize that that's true. 
to agree with Jesus. And the only way you know it's true by trying it out. So can I suggest this? This week, until we meet again, six days you've got. Each day, look, seek an opportunity to be generous. Tomorrow morning, it might be shouting someone a coffee. And it's not just your turn. It might be buying someone, that person you work with that you don't really like, lunch. It might be surprising someone with a thoughtful gift. Seeing that person in need, whether on the street or in your connect room, say, you know what, I'm going to bless this person in abundance. That person who owes you money, saying, you know what, text them. Don't worry about it. Let them enter God's rest. It might be going when you go shopping to buying food for the bag of hope. It might be looking at your finances and saying, what percentage am I giving? I want to increase it by percentage so that more people like the Yaps who know Jesus and have their life transformed. Six days for you to move from knowing it is blessed to give than receive to knowing it is more blessed to give than receive. Because the more you cling on, the more you're missing out. The more open-handed we are, the more joy it brings because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Friends, God cheerfully gives and gives and he's giving to you right now. And he calls his people, hey, be cheerful givers.